Chapter Fourteen of Starman's Quest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Starman's Quest by Robert Silverberg. Chapter Fourteen. Hawkes took over, explaining the proposition to a now very much awake Alan. There's going to be a currency transfer at the World Reserve Bank downtown next Friday. At least ten million credits are going to be picked up by an armored truck and taken to branch banks for distribution. Hollis here happens to have found out the wave pattern of the robo-guards who will be protecting the currency shipment, and Alan Weber has some equipment that can paralyze robo-guards if we know their operational wavelength. So it's a simple matter to leave the car unprotected. We wait till it's loaded, then blank out the robots, seize the human guards, and drive away with the truck. Alan frowned thoughtfully. Why am I so indispensable to this business? He had no desire to rob banks or anything else. Because you're the only one of us who isn't registered on the central directory. You don't have any televector number. You can't be traced. Suddenly Alan understood. So that's why you didn't let me register? You've been grooming me for this all along? Hawks nodded. As far as Earth is concerned, you don't exist. If any of us drove off with that truck, all they need to do is plot the truck's coordinates and follow the televector patterns of the man who's driving it. Capture is inevitable that way. But, if you're aboard the truck, there's no possible way of tracing your route. Get it? I get it, Alan said slowly, but I don't like it, he added silently. I want to think about the deal a little longer, though. Let me sleep on it. I'll tell you tomorrow whether I'll go through with it. Puzzled expressions appeared on the faces of Hawk's eight guests, and Weber started to say something, but Hawk's cut him hastily off. The boy's a little sleepy, that's all. He needs time to get used to the idea of being a millionaire. I'll call each of you in the morning, okay? The eight were shepherded out of the apartment rapidly, and when they were gone, Hawks turned to face Alan. Gone now was the bland friendliness, gone the warm-hearted brotherliness of the older man. His lean face was cold and businesslike now, and his voice was harsh as he said, What's this talk of thinking it over? Who said you had any choice about this thing? Don't I have any say in my own life? Alan said hotly. "'Suppose I don't want to be a bank robber. "'You didn't tell me.' "'I didn't need to. "'Listen, boy, I didn't bring you in here for my health. "'I brought you in because I saw you had the potential for this job. "'I've coddled you along for more than three months now, "'given you a valuable education in how to get along on this planet. "'Now I'm asking you to pay me back. A little.' "'Bing told the truth.' You're indispensable to this project. Your personal feelings are irrelevant just now. Who says? I do. Alan stared coldly at Hawk's transformed face. Max, I didn't bargain for a share in your bank-robbing syndicate. I don't want any part of it. Let's call it quits right now. I've turned over quite a few thousand credits of my winnings to you. Give me five hundred and keep the rest. It's your pay for my room and board and the instruction the last three months. You go your way, I'll go mine. 
Hawkes laughed sharply. Just as simple as that. I pocket your winnings and you walk out of here? How dumb do you think I am? You know the names of the syndicate. You know the plans. You know everything. A lot of people would pay big money for an advance tip on this bit. He shook his head. I'll go my way and you'll go it too, Alan, or else. You know what that or else means? Angrily, Alan said, You'd kill me too if I back down now. Friendship doesn't mean a thing to you. Help us rob this bank or else. Hawk's expression changed again. He smiled warmly, and when he spoke his voice was almost wheedling. Listen, Alan, we've been planning this thing for months. I put down seven thousand to clear your brother, just so I'd be sure of getting your cooperation. I tell you there's no danger. I didn't mean to threaten you, but try to see my side of it. You have to help out. Alan looked at him curiously. How come you're so hot to rob the bank, Max? You earn a fortune every night. You don't need a million more credits. No, I don't. But some of them do. Johnny Bing does, and Kovac, too. He owes Bryson thirty thousand. But I organized the scheme. Hawks was pleading now. Alan, I'm bored. Deadly bored. Gambling isn't gambling for me. I'm too good. I never lose except when I want to. So I need to get my kicks someplace else. This is it. But it won't come off without you. They were silent for a moment. Alan realized that Hawks and his group were desperate men. They would never let him live if he refused to cooperate. He had no choice at all. It was disillusioning to discover that Hawks had taken him in, mostly because he would be useful in a robbery. He tried to tell himself that this world was a jungle where morality didn't matter, and that the million credits he'd gain would help finance hyperdrive research. But those were thin arguments that held no conviction. There was no justification for what he was going to do, none whatsoever. But Hawks held him in a cleft stick. There was no way out. He had fallen among thieves, and willy-nilly he would be forced to become one of them. All right, he said bitterly. I'll drive the getaway truck for you. But after it's over, I'll take my share and get out. I won't want to see you again. Hawks seemed to look hurt, but he masked the emotion quickly enough. That's up to you, Alan but I'm glad you gave in. It would have been rough on both of us otherwise. Suppose we get some sleep. Alan slept poorly during what was left of the night. He kept mulling the same thoughts round and round endlessly in his head until he wished he could unhinge the front of his skull and let the thoughts escape somehow. It irritated him to know that Hawks had taken him in, primarily because he fit the qualifications for a plan concocted long before, and not for his own sake. All the intensive training the gambler had given him had been directed not merely toward toughening Alan, but toward preparing him for the role he would play in the projected robbery. He felt unhappy about the robbery, too. The fact that he was being coerced into taking part made him no less a criminal, and that went against all his long-ingrained codes of ethics. He would be just as guilty as Hawks or Weber, and there was no way out. 
There was no sense brooding over it, he decided finally. When it was all over, he would have enough money to begin aiming for his real goal, development of a workable hyperspace drive. He would break completely with Hawks, move to some other city, perhaps. If his quest were successful, it would in some measure be an atonement for the crime he was going to commit. Only in some measure, though. The week passed slowly, and Alan did poorly at his nightly work. His mind was anywhere but on the flashing games board, and the permutations and combinations eluded him. He lost, though not heavily. Each night the ten members of the syndicate met at Hawk's apartment and planned each step of the crime in great detail, drilling and redrilling until it was second nature for each man to recite his particular part in the robbery. Allen's was at once the simplest and most difficult. He would have nothing to do until the others had finished their parts, but then he would have to board the armored car and outrace any pursuers. He was to drive the car outside the city limits, where he would be met and relieved of the cash by Bing and Hollis. Then he was to lose the truck somewhere and return to the city by public transport. The day of the robbery dawned cold and clear, an autumn chill was in the air. Alan felt some anticipatory nervousness, but he was calmer than he expected to be, almost fatalistically calm. By nightfall he would be a wanted criminal. He wondered whether it would be worth it, even for the million credits. Perhaps it would be best to defy Hawks and make some sort of escape try. But Hawks, as always a shrewd judge of human character, seemed obviously aware that Alan was wavering. He kept a close watch over him, never allowing him to stray. Hawks was taking no chances. He was compelling Alan to take part in the robbery. The currency transfer was scheduled to take place at 12.40, according to the inside information that Hollis had somehow obtained. Shortly after noon, Hawks and Allen left the apartment and boarded the undertube, their destination the downtown section of York City, where the World Reserve Bank was located. They reached the bank about 12.30. The armored truck was parked outside, looking sleek and impregnable, and four massive roboguards stood watch, one at each wheel. There were three human policemen, too, but they were strictly for effect, in case of any trouble, the roboguards were expected to handle the rough work. The bank was a mighty edifice indeed, over a hundred stories high, rising in sweeping setbacks to a point where its tapering top was lost in the shimmering noonday sky. It was, Alan knew, the center of global commerce. Armed guards were bringing packages of currency from within the bank and were placing them on the truck. Alan's heart raced. The streets were crowded with office workers out for lunch. Could he get away with it? It was all precisely synchronized. As Hawks and Alan strolled toward the bank, Alan caught sight of Kovac lounging across the street, reading a telefax sheet. None of the others were visible. Weber, Alan knew, was at this moment sitting in an office overlooking the bank entrance, staring out the window at the scene below. At precisely 
Weber was to throw the switch on the wave damper that would paralyze the four roboguards. The instant the roboguards froze, the other conspirators would go into action. Jensen, McGuire, Freeman, and Smith, donning masks, would leap for the three human guards of the truck and pin them to the ground. Bing and Hawks, who would enter the bank a moment before, would stage an impromptu fist-fight with each other just inside the main entrance, thereby creating confusion and making it difficult for reinforcement guards to get past them and into the street. Just outside the door, Hollis and Kovac would lurk. As the quartet pounced on the truck's guards, they would sprint across and yank the driver out of the cab. Then Alan would enter quickly from the other side and drive off, while the remaining nine would vanish into the crowd as many different directions as possible. Bing and Hollis, if they got away, would head for the rendezvous to meet Alan and take the cash from him. If it went off properly, the whole thing should take less than fifteen seconds, from the time Weber threw the switch to the time Alan drove away with the truck. If it went off properly. The seconds crawled by. The time was 12.35 now. At 12.37, Hawks and Bing sauntered into the bank from opposite directions. Three minutes to go. Alan's false calm deserted him. He pictured all sorts of possible calamities. 12.38. Everyone's watch was synchronized to the second. 12.39. 12.39.30. Thirty seconds to go. Alan took his position in a crowd of bystanders as prearranged. Fifteen seconds to go. Ten. Five. 12.40. The roboguards were in the act of redirecting the locking of the truck. The loading had been carried out precisely on schedule. The truck was sealed. The roboguards froze. Weber had been right on time. Alan tensed, caught up in the excitement of the moment, and thinking now only of the part he was to play. The three policemen glanced at each other in some confusion. Jensen and McGuire came leaping out at them. And the roboguards returned to life. The sound of blaster shots was heard within the bank. Alan whirled, startled. Four guards came racing out of the building, blasters drawn. What had happened to Hawks and Bing? Why weren't they obstructing the entrance as it had been arranged? The street was a scene of wild confusion now. People milled everywhere. Alan saw Jensen writhing in the steel grip of a roboguard. Had Weber's device failed? Evidently so. Alan was unable to move. He saw Freeman and McGuire streaking wildly down the street with police in keen pursuit. Hollis stood staring dumbly inside the bank door. Alan saw Kovac come running toward him. "'Everything's gone wrong,' Kovac whispered harshly. "'The cops were waiting for us. Bing and Hawks are dead. Come on, run if you want to save yourself.' End of chapter 14